0: Hello and welcome to another episode of A Composer's Journey. In this episode, we're going to be talking with David Conte. David is a prolific composer of over 150 works published by EC Shermer Music Company, including seven operas, works for chorus, works for solo voice, orchestra, band, and chamber music. In 1982, Conte lived and worked with Aaron Copeland while he was preparing a study of the composer's sketches. And he also received a Fulbright fellowship for study with Copeland's teacher, Nadia Boulanger, in Paris. And actually, that's how David and I got in touch. If you haven't seen my video on Nadia Boulanger, who was one of the most famous music teachers probably of all time, then you can watch that video on my YouTube channel, Inside the Score. And David was actually one of Madame Boulanger's last students, studying with her for three years. He is now Professor professor of Composition and Chair of the Composition Department at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, where he's taught since 1985. And in 2010, he was appointed to the Composition Faculty of the European American Musical Alliance in Paris. So welcome, David. How are you?
1: Good. I think good afternoon to you. I'm in San Francisco. Uh, good morning. Good day to all the listeners. I'm delighted to be here with you, Oscar.
0: Well, what I was really interested in talking about today is your ideas on a natural pedagogy for composition students, because obviously you you have decades of experience teaching composition uh, to people, I imagine, of all kinds of different abilities. And I was really interested in your thoughts on how people develop a foundation for learning composing and how they build upon that foundation. So I was wondering if you could talk a little.
1: Sure, wonderful question. So I think you could say about almost everything where someone excels, like you could say, tennis players are born and then made, composers (laughs) are born and then made, meaning that a person is given an aptitude for something. And if they're fortunate enough to have the right teachers and also to have the character... This has a lot to do with personal character to to apply discipline. Someone can be very talented and not have much discipline. And in that sense, they won't achieve the greatness that they may be destined to achieve. So I say composers are born and then made. And so the teacher's job is to determine in an organic way. This could be with a young child. It could be with an older adult who always, you know, did compose and wants to really study to test their aptitude. Of course, that has everything to do with uh, a really mysterious combination of uh, skills, having to do with the ear and the memory. And so now I would, since we mentioned Nadia Boulanger, someone asked her once, she was, you know, such an important composition teacher who taught composers as varied as Aaron Copeland and Philip Glass and Quincy Jones and Elliot Carter and Astor Piazzola, <laughs> Michelle Legrand. This is a huge range of musicians. Someone wants to ask her, what's your advice to young composers? And she said three things. First, make a list of the music you love. So she's starting with love, which is wonderful. Then second, learn it by heart. Mm -hmm. One has to unpack that statement, which I will. Learn the music you love by heart. And then third, finally, when composing, never avoid the obvious. (laughs) This is very profound. So let's start with what you love means we all have our taste in life. We like certain foods. We like certain people. We like certain movies. We like certain composers and certain music. And of course, the great composers seem to transcend taste and that that's why they're great. Everyone loves them or they may if they don't love them as much as someone else, they respect them. So you make a list of the music you love. And then learn it by heart. Now, this is the important part. It's like if we think about how we learn anything, like you can say, I love let's take I love the Rite of Spring. All right. Mm -hmm. So you love it. You heard it live in a concert. You love it enough to buy a record or, you know, stream it on Spotify or whatever your service is, and listen to it a lot. And then you become more curious and you get a score and you learn. Do you follow it? You follow the music while looking at the score, which, of course, takes an immense amount of technical skill to read, to understand and comprehend. But then if you're even more curious, you sit down at the piano and maybe read it in the forehand arrangement that he did that he and Debussy read together, by the way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Debussy said he got I arose from the piano bench as if. Uh, awakening from an, a haunted nightmare, Gosh. <laughs> or a beautiful, a beautiful haunted nightmare. He did say it was mm. it was beautiful, but it was something haunted. And Stravinsky always said Debussy understood his piece. He thought in a way that few people did. And this interesting crossing of Debussy handing the baton to Stravinsky in terms of moving 20th century music forward. And so then when you actually sit down and with at the keyboard, and this is terribly important because when one plays the keyboard, when you play the piano or the organ, you're making music in three dimensions. There's no substitute for this. It means that you, in your body, you are managing rhythmic counterpoint and simultaneous events in such a way that composers have to do or are writing music unless they're writing, you know, monophonic music. Um, Then finally, memorizing. Now, we know that the French in particular, we have the astonishing feats of memory of Messia saying, I know Peleus, the score of Peleus by heart. He knew it since he was very young. Um, You know, Boulanger said, uh, well, my father made me memorize all 48 preludes and fugues of the well-tempered clavier. And I said, Mademoiselle, that's really extraordinary. By the time I was 10, I knew them. And she said, oh, my dear, a prelude and fugue a week, it's really not very much. Well, (laughs) I personally know about 15 of the 48 which I don't know I think I consider it an accomplishment but I maybe I will someday learn the others but to memorize a contrapuntal work with one's own body is is involves a certain immense effort and see there's no in a culture where we have a love of ease everything is made easier for us technology has you know, developed in our modern lives in such a way as to make many things easier. But the downside of that is that something mastering a skill, any skill, be it playing tennis or writing music, Mm -hmm. is not easy necessarily. (laughs) It takes effort. And Boulanger also said, the true teacher teaches the student to love what is difficult. And this was the core of her success as a teacher is that she somehow was able to embody music in such a way that inspired you. If you knew you were a composer and wanted to be a composer to work incredibly hard. So I'd say these these things about that, learn it by heart. In terms of composition, I always start with any composer. Say someone comes to me who's 30 years old. I figure out they have really quite good aptitude. I have an ear test that I've evolved that I've given to thousands of people where I play things and they just have to sing them back. They don't have to sing them with solfege or anything. It's all about to the extent they hear sonic information and can repeat it back to me the way a child would learn to talk by listening to the adults around them or the people around them speak. If I determine that they have a certain aptitude and certain musical memory, then we can start working. And if their keyboard isn't very developed, it's just a step you can't skip. I say, okay, you must learn to play the piano as well as possible. That doesn't mean you're going to be a concert pianist. Mm -hmm. I'm not really, although I did play at a quite high level. By the time I was 20, I had learned by heart a number of pieces. And I always say, someone says, well, what how is it that you can compose with fluency and eloquence, you know, with a certain naturalness? What's the one thing above everything else you did? And I did many things. I studied harmony and counterpoint and orchestration and, but the music that I learned by heart was the foundation of my composing because I always say the chief job of the composer is to hear what should come next. So you have an idea, and then the question is, well, where does it go? And unless your memory, unless you have a trained musical memory, how you decide what comes next ends up becoming either intellectual or some kind of, you know, um, intellectual constructor. becomes more and more removed from the body. And we have to remember, music is made by people in their bodies. There's an athletic component to making music, right? So, I, you know, I could talk for 10 more minutes on this subject, but maybe... <laughs> You want to jump in, and
0: <laughs> well, no, I I love that you're saying that because in in several of the last of the most recent episodes, I often get questions of sort of how do I um, how do I do this harmonically, or how do I write better for orchestra, and my answer to that is so often. I mean, I love the idea of learning by heart because my answer was was almost the same as that was model model the music you love, buy a score, and look at, you know, if it's Mahler, look at, study how Mahler wrote these moments that you love. And, and as you study it, and as you learn it, you'll absorb it. And I'm curious, when you say, learn this music by heart, do you also mean, because you say playing it on piano, but do you also mean learn the orchestration, learn, you know, what's, what's yeah, happening? At, yeah. So
1: you use the great word, which is model. So uh, the fingers lead the brain in the ear. I'm not saying it's not the only way one learns music, but it's all, let's just look at the history of the great composers. I'll often ask a student, well, who are your five favorite composers? I get the same answers a lot, like Stravinsky, Ravel, Shostakovich, Prokofiev, Copeland, Barber. Uh, Well, you know, if you look at the lives of all those composers, they all were very accomplished pianists. So this is not an accident. Mm-hmm. But the thing about modeling, Boulanger also said, she used to quote Pascal quite often, and I use this as a kind of mantra in my own teaching. Um, Pascal said, in the past, one imitated mastery. Today, one seeks for singularity. Mm-hmm. So the idea of imitating mastery, which is, mod- is related to modeling, is all the great composers did this and almost no one does it now unless they mm-hmm. study with me or a few other people. So that the idea, there's an obsession, particularly among modern people, and it happened in the 20th century with the question of originality, which is a red herring, because one is an original by choice. The root of the word original is origins. That comes back to what mm-hmm. you know by heart. It's so one's origins. You know, we all have ancestors. I have a funny story to tell about <clears throat> My colleague, the late Conrad Souza, who is a brilliant composer, mm-hmm. we talked together for many years, I used to do an exercise with my students where I said, I want you to trace your musical lineage. Who are your ancestors? Like, look, and I've done this for myself. Look at your music and say, well, I really was, you know, influenced by the asymmetrical rhythms of Stravinsky and the modality of Debussy and folk music influence of Von Williams or whatever we're all a mix. Like if I look at your face, I don't know your, I could say, oh, you, you have your aunt's widow's peak, or you know what I'm saying? (laughs) We all have ancestors. So one very arrogant student who, by the way, was the least talented student among all of them, said, I don't have any ancestors. And I told Conrad Souza this, and he said, oh, well, he must be the Immaculate Conception. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So that gets a theological thing in there, which I like to do, because I think there is relation between art and Theology. Music lives in a sacred place, and it's a sacred mission to work with music and the state of mind, as the Greeks understood so well, that music engenders, transcends the present, and is is belongs to the eternal rather than the temporal. So modeling, very important. And Ravel said, you know, you cannot repeat. You cannot do better than repeat what has been well said. Someone once asked asked Ravel, oh, the ending of Daftus and Chloe is so thrilling. How did you do it? And he said, I was in a very bad mood about it when I was trying to finish it. I put Rimsky's Scheherazade, the third movement, up on the piano, and I just Mm -hmm. copied it. Now he was being a little glib. But if you look carefully, you can see there's something in the unfolding of the energy curve about Scheherazade and Daphnis at the end—a piece I've studied. Both pieces I've studied very deeply.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm curious um, because you mentioned earlier that you had studied counterpoint and harmony and things. Uh, where do you think the utility of the traditional study of things like counterpoint lies in a, in a composing student's journey? I'm talking. I know lots of people will will go through learning um, traditional sort of Palestrinian counterpoint and. Uh, some people may resent it because some people may feel like, well, but I don't want my music to sound like Palestrina or Bach. I know
1: that this is a terrible mistake. And let's, let's take, I don't know if your listeners will know these buildings. Most people know the Notre Dame cathedral,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Yes.
1: And I think of a great modern building that I know is the Frank Gehry's Disney hall in Los Angeles. So anyone could go online and look at a picture of these, look at the Notre Dame cathedral and Frank Gehry's symphony hall next to each other. They look utterly different. However, Students of architecture who built both, whoever they are, learn certain basic principles that ensure that those buildings won't fall down.
0: Mm -hmm. That's
1: what traditional counterpoint is. In other words, Boulanger said another thing. She said there are matters of technique that transcend style and taste. So if someone says, well, I don't want to write in the style of Palestrina and I don't really like him as much as I like whoever, that's not the issue. And this is what a good teacher has to help the student understand this. These principles, for example, in the writing of choral music, which I, I like to think I excel in it, it was my first love. All the principles of, you know, parallel dissonant intervals, voice crossings, voice overlaps, the preparation of dissonance are just as relevant to human beings who live in their bodies and are having to align with the overtone series mm. now as they were in Palestrina's time. We may think, oh, how can we say that? You know, but it actually is true. And this is the composer of choral music who's really paying attention realizes this. There's nothing easier than to write a choral piece, an a cappella choral piece, that's really too damn hard. And for the wrong reasons. So this idea, uh, Ravel also said, Boulanger, great story, that they were in Foray's composition class together. And she was born in 87 and he in 75. So they were, what, 12 years apart. So she was maybe... 12, and he was 24. <clears throat> she realized many years later, she said, I realized Ravel was in the counterpoint class, oh, it was the counterpoint class. And he'd already written his string quartet. And she said to him, why were you taking counterpoint then? And he said, oh, one must clean the house from time to time. I do it this way. I do it this way. These great composers, look at great composers like Schubert and Mozart and Beethoven, who all in the later in life, they all knew Bach. But as they became older, and of course, Schubert and Mozart didn't live to be very old, they started really studying Bach deeply. And you see the fugues Mm -hmm. that occur in the late Beethoven works and in the late Schubert works and the late Mozart works, like the Overture to Magic Flute, for example. So there's something, the great composers always were studying counterpoint and it's... I remember, I won't say the name because it's tacky to say the names of people alive, but some, uh, you know, like living composer came and gave a lecture at one of my schools and said, oh, you can learn counterpoint in six weeks. Well, even at 18, I thought this, this is a very foolish remark. (laughs) People, great composers spent years studying counterpoint, imitating mastery, learning elements of craft that transcend style and taste. (laughs) That's the foundation. Like Look at what Boulanger, when you think of how different her students were, but how there's a certain a Boulanger student, not uniformly, but any Boulanger student has a certain basic craft, which, as she would say, ensures that you can weave, you won't weave bad cloth. She, she said that one day Stravinsky came to dinner— and she had just purchased the complete Josquin and the complete Orlando de Lasso, like the editions. And so they were like stacked up books, right? And Sravinski put his hand on, he said, What is this and what is this? And she said, That's the complete Orlando de Lasso, that's the complete. I think it was Palestrina actually. And he said, You know, while we know that not every page is a masterpiece, there's not a page of bad music there. And as Nadia said, Well, yes, of course, such is the level of their technique. Like the Bach cantatas, we know not every one of the hundreds of Bach cantatas is a masterpiece on the same level as the very greatest ones. However, there's a certain technique that ensures that all of them are of a certain quality. I think this is the reason that Nadia Boulanger's music, which she didn't think much of, and now that she's been dead over a hundred, well, no, she died in 79. But you have notice more and more interest in Boulanger's music. And the fact is that the very best pieces, is it, her music doesn't have necessarily a strikingly original sound, although some pieces do. Um, but that mm-hmm. the music is so well made. It has yes, beauty. Yeah. It has craft. It has eloquence. So, of course, people are going to perform it. Mm-hmm. Um, she knew she wasn't like her
0: sister, Lily. I know you're about... Maybe you've already done your I've, video. about. I've video. written it. I've been held up producing it, but it is, I'm very oh, excited about it. Hopefully it. This, this month it's going to happen. Yeah.
1: Well, she was it's, a great genius and she died at yeah. 24. And she would, she, I think, still is, to my thinking, the most important woman composer history has produced. It, it, far. It's
0: extraordinary. The, the the music she wrote in such a brief length, about 10 years of, of works that we know of, it's I right, think. 10 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really, I'm looking forward to making that. I just I have a project till mid March, which has really um, taken up my time. And then towards the end of March, I'm just going to make that video. And I'm looking forward well, to it. It's my reward.
1: <laughs> you're doing a great service to oh, music. Oh, that's kind. Lily Boulanger, I'm, it's wonderful to see the interest in her music has just increased in intensity steadily. Mm-hmm. And now there are multiple recordings of almost every work. She's in the repertory now, yeah. but it took 100 years. Yeah. She died in 1918. I remember
0: listening. uh, um, It was Fausta Helen was the first thing I heard of her. And I I just, at first I had it on in the background. I don't always do that, but I I just had it on in the background as part of a a, a, listening to new music that I didn't know. And I just stopped everything and and wound up listening to the whole thing. I was utterly amazed that I was almost stunned at how unrecognized she was by the sort of wider community actually from that work and, um, and more recently, have listened to so much more, but that's that's to come. But I'm, I mean, for what you said about counterpoint, I feel like the same can be said about a harmony. That that in this sort of Western school of harmony, there there are actually rules that almost uh, follow physical law, and composers who have who have tried to composers such as Webern and this, this second school who try to escape the boundaries of, of harmony, as in harmoniousness, um, what ironically winds up happening is that the listener still glimpses those brief moments of harmony within, within um, disorder. And I'm wondering, I know it's a controversial thing to say, but I'm... It
1: is controversial. I, well, I do believe, I don't mind saying it now, there are masterpieces of the second Viennese school. I don't mm-hmm, think very mm-hmm. many, personally, for me. But I do think that in culture, there are such things as cooperative delusions and that the (laughs) idea that the 12-tone technique, as Schoenberg said, will be ensure the supremacy of German music for 100 years and that the prerequisite for entry into a conservatory will be to show you can manipulate a 12-tone row. That has not happened. He also said... I only want to be considered, I'm quoting him, by the way, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I only want to be considered a superior sort of Tchaikovsky that my melodies be (laughs) humped and whistled. That has not happened, nor will it ever happen. Mm. I happen to know a number of 12-tone rows by heart. I made a point of trying to memorize them and trying. I spent a great deal of time when I was in graduate school in the late 70s, early 80s, dealing with the question of the 12-tone technique. I wrote two theses uh, Copeland, who used the technique, my theses were about mm. his 12-tone music. Now, he adapted it in a very personal way. But I do think it was a cooperative delusion. Yeah. And yeah. it. Uh, Conrad Souza said about Webern, who I'm not saying this is a person of great integrity and seriousness. I don't think I'm not. But he said, well, you know, Weyburn's all right, but it's kind of like having a vitamin pill instead of a meal. <laughs> There's really truth to that. Um, If you think how it is that music can nourish us. So I think history decides in the end, um, the music that performers bond with, it's a wonderful cycle because a composer will create a work in solitude. And in, of course, in collaboration with performers, it's absolutely essential that composers and performers interact. It's why Ives' music, Ives may have been a genius in a way, but he's not a professional composer. He did not practice it professionally like Copland did, where he wrote Mm -hmm. pieces he worked with players, they played them, they were recorded, there was that cycle. The way Mahler, if you think about how Mahler fixed the details in his scores with such precision, because he was a professional, he was conducting an opera mm-hmm. orchestra, then he was writing his symphonies, he was hearing the played. Um, so without that collaboration, then the performers decide what music they bond with and then the pieces enter the repertory over time And the performers make convincing, eloquent cases for listeners. And then that cycle of composer, performer, listener happens and pieces enter the repertory. And it's fascinating. I mean, every I certainly hope I've been lucky to have maybe a dozen pieces that are in the repertory. I think, will they stay there after I'm dead? I I can't say, but. I feel like, you know, 12 pieces out of one hundred fifties. it's not bad, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. there's, I have to say, well, why is it that this piece, which is 30 years old, gets done every season? Um, Sardu said, by the way, any play that it's given a thousand times can't be wrong. It's an interesting thought. Now, that doesn't mean something can be very, let me, I want to quote Randall Thompson, your <laughs> listeners may not, the American choral composer. Right. He said, something can be very popular and not great, or very great and not popular. But over time, the two become the same thing. And I want to make a point with this. I think that has always been true historically, but I do think that right now in this culture, given the way cultural information is disseminated so rapidly and in a way, thoroughly in one way, but in another way, ephemerally, Mm -hmm. it's going to take longer for what is very popular, but not great, For what is great and not popular. It is, and I, I, this is, I don't mean it to be discouraging, but I actually kind of warned my students about this. I said, maybe where it would have taken a generation for really the strongest music to rise to the top, it's maybe going to take two now. I could be wrong, but I I just noticed that because I think quite frankly, and again, no, one doesn't want to mention names, but a lot of music, a lot of composers are very often performed. Their music seems to be not to be very deep. I mean, I'm already I'm willing to say that. It doesn't have the quality of eloquence and depth and seriousness. It's another maybe cooperative delusion. One reason I think this is true is that a shallow audience confuses activity with direction. So they hear mm. sonic information that stimulates their nervous system, and they think, I'm really experiencing something, yes. music. But that activity, if it's not harnessed to rhetorical thought— Meaning, like an idea that is stated and then developed and put in combination with other ideas in a way that's eloquent and truly organic, you don't have any direction. And there's a lot of pieces as a composition teacher. I'm looking at hundreds and hundreds over the years of applications of students, and you can tell right away if a composer's ear is truly engaged.
0: You actually run, uh, I think I'm right in saying, a summer school in Paris where yes. you teach folks, and I guess, I I don't know what you teach. I, I suppose you teach counterpoint and harmony things, but what is it that you teach at this summer school? Let me talk. So I
1: don't run it, but I'm privileged to teach there. Dr. Philip Lasser, who teaches at the Juilliard School, founded this program. Um, He had studied with Boulanger just very briefly because she died the year he encountered her, and then he studied with one of her main proteges, a man named Narcisse Bonnet, who was um, from... Spain, Catalan, I believe. Anyway, he decided uh, Boulanger taught for many summers at Fontainebleau. That's where Copeland encountered her in 1921. And that school still exists. But in fact, uh, Philip was inspired to, in his own way, continue the pedagogy of Boulanger, which he has managed to do in this program, which is called EMA, a European American Musical Alliance. You can look it up easily online, EAMA. And so uh, this The experience of this program is quite similar, not completely, to Fontainebleau, where I attended in
0: 1975. That's and
1: Boulanger School. That, yeah, all the students we do, there's an emphasis on craft and on technique. So everyone does counterpoint. Everyone does analysis. Keyboard harmony, very important. Um, musicianship. Uh, everyone sings in the chorale. Okay. Which is conducted by Dr. Mark Shapiro, also in New York, who's a marvelous choral musician, just all around a musician. Um, everyone does all of these activities together, and they, they, the students have an immense amount of contact hours with a faculty of about seven or eight. And so for one month, and Fontainebleau was two months, but for one month, a student can go to Paris and study in this program and get mm-hmm. a feeling— to some extent of what it was like. Virgil Thompson said something, it's important to repeat. He said, the French have the longest unbroken line of composition pedagogy in the West. Cool. They do, meaning like 8, 1795, I believe the Paris Conservatory was founded. And of course it, it had certain uh, protocol or ways of training composers. You know, we have to remember the counterpoint was invented in the Notre Dame school, essentially, right?
0: Mm. <laughs> <So> the <laughs> it's French, to, yeah.
1: yeah, the French have a way of teaching music, and Boulanger, kind of astonishingly at the turn of the last century, being half Russian and half French, and this is important too, because by the way, Russia evolved as a major musical culture only in the like mid-19th century towards the end, right? And then... Mm-hmm. You know, starting with Glinka and then moving, you know, Tchaikovsky and Mazorsky and Rimsky and then all, you know, Shostakovich, Stravinsky, Prokofiev. This is a major school of composition. And the Russians understood something. Their understanding of harmony was really markedly different from the Italian-German understanding. And the French understood this, I believe, uniquely in a way Mm -hmm. that the other cultures didn't quite the same. And so you have what we can call a franco-russian line that happens where French music and Russian music merge and then they're embodied in Boulanger as a teacher who then starts teaching all these Americans mm-hmm. starting with Copland essentially and American music then in terms of classical music took off in the 20th century there was we had American composers like McDowell and even Griffiths who died young but Copeland, in some ways, of course, he is our national composer. He embodies in his yeah. music something about the character of our country. So that Franco-Russian line then gets harnessed to the American line. And there we are. And I'm part of that line. the very, I don't want to say I'm at the end of it because my students, I believe, are also part of it.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: I, you know, there aren't that many people left who studied with boulanger There are, you know, I don't know how many, but... Um, you know,
0: she was born in 1887. So, yes. yeah, you know, so, uh, I mean, I'm curious what the class of musicianship, uh, comprises of, and obviously you, know, you don't have to give the whole game away, but I'm curious what kind of things, no, no, musicianship class...
1: well, I, don't, I don't want to say you're opening a can of worms, but I have <laughs> my own, I, I musicianship pedagogy is an area of deep interest. Yeah. How people learn to hear. Mm-hmm. And this is a big topic, and the French have their way of doing it. And of course, they use fixed do solfege, which I would say, I would assert, is the tool for the consummate musician. However, <laughs> movable do solfege really is far older. The Guidonian hand, which is the medieval hex based on the medieval hexachords, is a movable system. Ut, which was what was dough, is moves with the three X mm-hmm. So mi fa is always a half step. So that's a, that's a kind of huge, I'm just maybe can be tantalizing to your listeners, this whole question of pedagogy and solfege. I have my own belief that um, what can be very efficacious for many people is to learn movable dough and then switch to fixed dough. And you think, well, wait, it's one or the other. No, I say it's one and then the other. But um, that's unique. I don't know many people who have the consciousness that I have. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you it was my own background. Yeah. Because growing up in the Midwest, Midwestern United States and where the Kodai training really is very strong in the United States. I know it's somewhat strong in England. It's certainly very strong in, you know, Eastern Europe and Central Europe, you know, countries like Hungary where Kodai was from. But um, I had really rigorous training from the ages of 14 to 19 in movable dough. And then I went to France and I happily dropped it and switched to fixed dough. Yeah. And this is not, it's really, solfege is very important. The idea of naming something and connecting the ear with the sound. And in the case of fixed dough, connecting the eye, the eye to a note on a liner space on the page in all seven clefs. That's where the consummate musicianship part comes in. So um, this subject, this is a very big topic, and maybe we can, yes, I'd be happy yeah. to have another podcast about Maybe, yeah, sure. Tra- Musicianship training. Um, and, you know, some people have different aptitudes in terms of their oral memories, and there are some people who don't need movable, though. But I, I have mm. to say, in my experience, it's not that many.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. I'm- and
1: everyone can benefit from it, and then fixto. Is a, That's how I, th- I think I can do both equally well, but I think when I'm orchestrating, for example, and I'm writing a French horn part, I'm thinking in the mezzo-soprano clef, because that's how the French horn, I always, and I encourage my students to orchestrate, to write transpose scores. Yeah. Because that's a, so much of the great repertory is notated that way, and you have to know the clefs to read orchestra yeah. scores. Mm-hmm. So that's part of musicianship, that training, which is very valuable to a place like Ema, which is working on the clefs. And, and then applying it particularly to keyboard harmony and score reading and learning to read, even starting very simply orchestras, you know, instrumental scores or choral scores, like the Bach chorales, which are all published in four clefs,
0: mm-hmm. soprano, which <laughs> are Yeah. Yes.
1: That's a big fundamental part of training still in many conservatories, which is very valuable. Mm-hmm. And a place like Ema is keeping that alive and you know, the great thing about EMA is you're, you're at this Scola Contorum, which is this the building founded in 1895 or so, I think, as an alternative to the Paris Conservatory. And we take over that building for the month of July. Oh, yeah. you, can, you can walk past Poulenc's house, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because he lived not far away. And so to be in Paris and experience, I, I mean, I really believe to actually be in Paris is very impactful.
0: Yeah, you yeah, are, absolutely. This is
1: why having it online we've kept the continuity going but it's not the same no. as being in paris for a month and living the parisian life while studying the way all these people studied the way people like our you know myself and dr lasser who's the founder we had that experience as young people and
0: he wanted very much to give yeah. that
1: to other young people
0: i can imagine it would be absolutely yeah, extraordinary. Experience. Yeah, I want you to and come. Yes. <laughs> well, what I was—can anyone apply? I mean, for those listening, absolutely, yeah.
1: absolutely. We have had students even in their seventies. Wow. But of course, most students are of college, like eighteen to twenty-four. Most, mm-hmm. but not there. There definitely there are a lot of very smart adults who come, maybe came to music later or who want a refresher. Uh, mm-hmm. We get quite a few students from the Juilliard, you know, like continuing education division because some of our teachers teach there. Meaning, people who live in New York who are, you know, maybe have very happening, responsible careers, but are still devoted to music and want to study it, and they can take a month off and do it, and it's perfect.
0: Well, I I remember you saying, um, and actually, this might be I mean, might be a sort of good quote to end on. I remember, I think I was actually watching a lecture of yours. About Madame Boulanger when I was doing my research for the video. And you said, I think it's no coincidence. I'm obviously paraphrasing, but you said, I think it's no coincidence that one of the most original composers of the 20th century, Claude Debussy, was also one of the most musically qualified. That he won, he, he cleaned up on the prizes at the Paris Conservatory, piano, and I suppose many other prizes. And was highly qualified and then went on to be original, and I I love the way earlier on that you you defined that word, and actually it's a very good reminder um, for those wondering how to be original in their work that it is, it is a matter of developing your uh, developing based on um, your heritage essentially. That is, thank you for letting me just speak for one minute about it. Yeah, sure, that. WC is this
1: idea of I often say to my students. Um, when you tell me the composers you most admire, you need to ask yourself the question, to what extent am I duplicating what they did? So if you really admire Debussy, you say, well, no one, you know, of course he's great, but greatness shouldn't frighten us, it should inspire us. So Mm -hmm. Debussy at the age of 10 auditioned at the Paris Conservatory playing, I believe the Chopin G minor Ballade from memory. (laughs) So what kind of 10 year old (laughs) is that? And as he he had really 10 years at the Conservatory, about the most rigorous technical training of any modern composer, and yet he's the most original. There's a lesson in that. Samuel Mm -hmm. Barber, by by the way, a new biography is about to appear by the great American biographer Howard Pollack, who did biographies of Copeland and Gershwin Mm. and Bloodstein. Barber spent eight years at Curtis with the same teacher, like from the age, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years, 14 to 24, somewhere in there, like as a teenager until he was a young adult doing rigorous counterpoint. I mean, Samuel Barber's music, I. the fact of the matter is it's firmly in the repertory. Mm-hmm. It, at one time it was maybe considered reactionary, but it has such craft
0: yeah, and eloquence
1: that of course he's firmly in the repertory. He's another example, like Copeland, who had his two years with Ruben Goldmark, three years with Boulanger. Um, these are things you can't skip. If you want to become the greatest composer you can be, whatever that is, there are certain things that can't be skipped. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And why? It doesn't matter if you're 18 or 48. I mean, if that's what you love and you're committed to, you figure out a way to do it. It's going to be different for every person. But as a pedagogue, I see that that is my privilege and responsibility is to try. A good teacher is there to save time for a student and say, look, you want, this is, I always say, you have to have agreed upon goals. What's your goal? Okay, if that's your goal, I agree with that goal. And this is how I understand you can get there. And so you damn well better do exactly as I say, <laughs> which seems authoritarian. But, you know, the kinds of students who I end up drawing to me are, have, are fine with that because they trust me. I think that, yeah, I'm going to help you realize your vision yeah. because there is a way of doing things. We do things in a certain order. Mm -hmm. And you can go down blind alleys a lot. I mean, a lot of there aren't that many autodidacts in music composition, by the way, historically. There just aren't many. Almost every great composer had very expensive, elaborate, long technical training. Yeah, that's just that's just look at the historical record.
0: Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Your
1: questions, I really thank you. For, your questions are very to the point. I know I've talked a lot more than you have. No, well, then we right? wanted to Every hear you. Every time you ask a question, there's it's a whole world of a kind of thought, a line of thought that when you get to be older like I am, you feel you really do know something about something. Yeah. And it's great. Well, it's like, it's not about being conceited. It's really about having the confidence and belief in your
0: knowledge. Well, we we know that you have you have so much experience with this that, um, and I'm sure we could even have another conversation in a few months and delve deeper into some of those topics. But thank you so much for. I'm, I'm sure people will be so fascinated with many, um, many aspects of the, of the conversation we've we've had. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show and. It's been great having you it's Been really illuminating talking with you and also thank you. gratifying because it's confirmed. I've, I've learned a bunch talking with you and it's also confirmed some of the things that I've believed over the last few years as I've um, been becoming more of a composer myself. So um, I, I really well, appreciate it.
1: I thank you for your Boulanger video because that's how I know you. And I know you put a lot of work into it and I was l- So thrilled to see it get, it's over 100,000 hits by now, but quite quickly, this tells me that there still is great interest in her and the way that you did it, which I think had, I say this in a good way, had the common touch, meaning there was a lot of substance to it, but you also presented it in such a way that would make it very accessible to a lot of people. And that's a very, you did a very valuable thing for the craft and the art of composition by doing this video.
0: You did I really yeah, appreciate God. that. That means a lot. It's yeah. and I'm I'm glad that it came across that way because that the whole goal of the channel was was not to be very erudite and intellectual but rather to try and spread a deeper understanding of classical music wider to those I I came to classical music actually very late about 15 years old um and once I discovered it I couldn't keep my hands off it. I was taking out all the books I could on it and things. But um, because of that, I was thinking, what would I have wanted as a 15-year-old who was curious, but didn't, didn't you know, wasn't ready for the sort of uh, deep lectures just yet?
1: Well, it's very generous of you to, that's, that, you, you there's a teacher in there Then it's like, <laughs> you have knowledge, you have to organize your knowledge to be a good teacher, and then you have the opportunity to share that knowledge with others.
0: Well, thank you. That's, that's a that's,
1: great privilege. You know, Henry Adams, the relation of, a couple of our presidents said, a teacher affects eternity. Mm. So beautiful. (laughs) A teacher affects eternity. They never can even measure where their influence stops, you know? Mm. And Ned Worm said Boulanger was, I think he was right. He said, she's the most, the greatest teacher since Socrates, which is a really bold statement to make, (laughs) but I think you could make a strong case for it. Gosh. So how lucky I was to have that for three years, you know?
0: Absolutely. And now you pass on the lineage. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much, David. Uh, And thanks, everybody, for listening.